I don't know if you know where you were in 1988. Uh, if you are 35 or under, the answer is obviously no. You don't know because you weren't alive then. Um, I, I remember uh, a brief moment in my life, at least at that time, and I'll share that with you. Um, I don't remember a lot about that year, but I was in, I was 10 the majority of that year, 10 years old. And I remember one day in my, uh, in my mom and dad's house, in our house, in the living room, I was doing WWF moves on a pillow. And it was WWF at that time. Um, and I looked up and my mom was reading this book. Uh, and it was, it was this book uh, right here, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 1988. Uh, it was written by a guy named Edgar Wisenant. He was a NASA scientist who was also a Christian, <laughs> all right? And she's reading that book, and I thought to myself, man, if Jesus is coming back this year, I should probably stop giving my mind to the World Wrestling Federation. And I should probably stop. I don't want to miss heaven because I'm acting like Macho Man Randy Savage, right? Oh, yeah, right? I just don't want that to happen. Some of y'all don't realize he was the one that did Slim Jim commercials for a while. I mean, it's stepping to a Slim Jim. Anyway, I, I was like, he's coming back. I need to pay attention, right? But he was a NASA scientist. He wrote this book, and he believed that there was a three-day span that Jesus was going to come back. It was either September 11th, 12th, or 13th of 1988. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not. That didn't happen. Um, so he said the next year, he wrote another book, and uh, he said he miscalculated because he used the Gregorian calendar instead of the Hebrew calendar. And uh, yeah, and so, so he wrote another book and he said, 89 reasons Jesus will come back in 1989. Did you not? Right, that was the book. He miscalculated again because it didn't happen, right? It didn't happen. I'm not making fun of Wisnet. He's not alone in all of this. He's not the only one that's made predictions about the coming of Christ. In our lifetime here, many of our lifetimes, uh, there's another popular uh, prediction that was done by a man named Harold Camping. Maybe you remember his name. He was putting billboards up about the coming of Christ and, and this taking place. He predicted in 1994 that Jesus would come back in, on September 6th. Okay. When that didn't happen, he said it was going to be September tw- uh, 29th. That's what it was. When that didn't happen, he said it was going to be October 2nd. So when that didn't happen, he waited a little while. And then he said, a decade or so later, he said that Jesus was going to come back on May 21st, 2011. That didn't happen. And we hadn't heard yet from Harold again. I don't know. He may be dead. I can't remember now. But uh, I don't mean that rude. I mean, that happens. People die. I mean, uh, but, uh, but I'm wondering. I mean, there's people predict. People are all the time predict. This has been going on forever. People trying to predict when Jesus is going to come back, predict the end of the world. In fact, if you went onto YouTube and you did a search of end times or end time predictions, which I don't recommend that you do. Uh, but if you do that, you get lost in a rabbit hole of people expressing their opinions and their thinking of when this is going to take place, how this is going to take place and all of that different thing. And, and I just wonder that when Jesus comes back and they're followers of Christ and they're in eternity with the father and they're up there and they start saying, I told you it was then I told you it was going to happen today. If Jesus comes by and he says, 
you didn't know. We had to come back at some time. You got lucky, right? I mean, you just wonder, is that kind of the thing that's, that's going to happen? But it's been taking place for a long time, people trying to predict when it was going to happen. For the last couple of years since I've been having the opportunity to, to leave the church as a pastor here, um, we just sent out a survey at the end of, uh, near the end of the year, the last couple of years. And the survey is just kind of to check the pulse of the congregation. And if you've never gotten that, we sent out an email, put it on social media, different ways. It'll come out again this year, around October. But there's always a question we ask in there. And we asked, you know, what, what would you like for us to dive a little bit more into on Sundays and our services? What book of the Bible, what topic would you like us to dive into? And so when we get those answers, I take those answers and I look at those answers during, while I'm praying about where God wants to take us in the uh, end of the next year, what he wants to talk, what he wants me to, to kind of study and, and talk about. I'll look at those answers and use that as I'm praying. But without fail for the last couple of years, the most prominent answer that comes back to that question is the book of Revelation and end times. That's the, that's the most prominent one that I get. And I get it. I get it. It is important to talk about. And, I, and I, my guess is when we send that survey out this year and that question is on there, my guess is that probably I'm going to get a lot of answers back on that question, Revelation and the book of end times. To which at that point, I'll refer you back to this series that we're doing right now, starting today. Okay. All right. But it is important. And, and I try to remind us on a regular basis that Jesus is going to come back at some time. He told his followers that every promise that Jesus made has come to pass. Why wouldn't that one? Right. The prophecies of his first coming come to pass. Why wouldn't the prophecies of a second coming come to pass? Thing is, we don't know when that is. We just know he will. And because he will, those of us who are followers of Christ, a part of the church of Christ, we have a purpose during that time until he comes back. And in regards to his first coming, the Bible prophesies towards his first coming about 130 times. It speaks towards his first coming. The Bible speaks towards the second coming of Christ about 330 times. It's important. And that's not just in the book of Revelation. It is sprinkled all throughout Scripture, talking about the return of Christ. So as we go into this series, all right, over these next few weeks, my goal is not to answer the question of when is it going to happen, all right? Because I don't know. Neither do you, okay? I know some of you might have charts, but we don't know, all right? And I'm not going to answer every question that, that you might have about what the end times looks like. I'm, not, I'm probably not going to answer every question that you might have about the book of Revelation. My goal in this whole series is to put our focus on Christ and on our purpose in the meantime. Okay? That's my goal. So as we go into the series, here's what the series is going to look like. I don't typically break down how the series is going to look like, but I'll do that because the series is in. Today, we're going to talk about the signs that Jesus gave his disciples. All right? We're going to talk about that today. Next week, God willing, because he could come back, you know. If we're here next Sunday, we're going to talk about the unveiling of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Okay? Week three, God willing, we'll talk about the unveiling of our spiritual enemy in the book of Revelation. Because we have one, he's real, he's active. In the last week, God willing, we'll talk about maybe what that end of the scripture, what the scripture tells us that end could look like, what it, what it talks about in regards to the end. But ultimately, here's the thing, and this is where it all culminate, and, and we'll talk about this every week. But ultimately, our decision to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of our life, that decision is not just a decision. 
that decision has a destination. The decision of whether or not to accept him or to reject him has a destination on either end of those decisions. We'll talk about that in that last week if we get there. So, let's jump in. Y'all ready? All right. Our curiosity uh, about when is Christ going to come back, that's not new curiosity. Okay? The disciples themselves were curious as to when Jesus was going to come back. I mean, that's a good friendship, right? When someone comes for the first time, you get to know them. And while they're there on the first time, you're asking them about when they're coming back, right? And that's a good friendship. I mean, this was the disciples. They were hungry to know when Jesus, and and primarily because Jesus would talk about it often. He would talk about when he was going to come back, when he was going to uh, come again. And, and so he would, he would say all of these different things. And so finally, the, the disciples were like, we want to know. Tell us when you're going to come back. And so I know we asked that same question. When is it going to happen? Are we close? I don't know. But I can tell you this. We're closer than they were, right? Okay. So Matthew, Mark, Luke. Those, three, those are three of the four Gospels that, that we see in the New Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this uh, the discourse, this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. It's commonly called the Olivet Discourse. All right? You can find it in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 24. Matthew's writing, if you didn't know this, is primarily to Jews. He was a Jew. He primarily writes to the Jews, trying to convince them the Messiah has come. All the prophecies that we are leading up to a Messiah, he's come. All right? And that was Jesus Christ. Matthew 24 is where you can see his writing. Mark, Mark's Gospel is written primarily to the church in Rome. All right. And he's in this writing. We get to Mark chapter 13 is where he shares this discourse. This is the longest recorded discourse of Jesus in Mark's gospel. All right. Jesus did a lot of teaching. Mark's gospel is shorter than all the other gospels. Okay. And he doesn't give as much as everybody else does, but he gives it. This is the longest conversation of Jesus he puts in his gospel. So that tells you Mark puts a lot of significance on this chapter and on what Jesus is saying. Yes, that's in Mark 13. Luke 21, Luke's gospel is primarily written. It's written to a guy, or most, most people believe to a guy named Theophilus. Some believe it could be a group of people, but it's primarily the Gentiles and the church everywhere. This is Luke writing because he's telling everything he's investigated about Jesus Christ. Is it true? Answer, yes. All right. But Luke 21 is where he records this conversation that we're looking at. Now we're going to look primarily at Matthew's gospel. Okay. Only because on week four, we're going to come back to Matthew 25 and Matthew 25, Matthew goes in and tells some parables that Mark and Luke don't tell that Jesus shared in relation to this discourse. Okay. Everybody good. You following Matthew 24 is where we're going. Matthew chapter 24. I asked my wife in between the first and second service. I said, will you please go and get me some reading glasses because old age stinks and the contacts I wear is for distance so I can see you. But every time I go to read the last couple of weeks, I'm like, you know, that I'm like my dad used to be, and I laughed at him. So here we go. Matthew chapter 24, start at verse 1. Oh, man, this is so much better. I said, baby, just give me something that I look, I, you think I look good in. All right. Matthew 24, start at verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. I believe that's because he was, they were proud of the temple. They were proud of what it looked like. Okay. And they're pointing out these temple buildings, but he responded, do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth. There will be, they will be completely demolished. 
Not one stone will be left on top of another. So later Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. His disciples came to him privately and they said, tell us when will this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? All right, that question sounds like a question you may be asked. All right, Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Then you'll be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You'll be hated all over the world because you're my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere. And the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world. So that all nations will hear it. And then the end will come. All right? So Jesus gives us some signs here that we can see, right? He gives us some signs to his disciples. Here's some of the signs that he lays out for them. He says there's going to be false Christ, false messiahs. Basically, there's going to be a spirit of antichrist. He said there's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be famines. There's going to be diseases. There's going to be natural disasters that take place. He says there's going to be persecution of his followers. There's going to be apostasy, which basically means this is a turning your back on God, a turning your turning of your back on the gospel of Jesus Christ. You turn your back on that. You turn your back on other followers of Christ. Even if those followers of Christ are your family, your blood, you turn your back on them. That's apostasy. He said there's going to be deception and there's going to be depravity. Now, if you're like me, you hear this list, you look at this list, you see this list, you're thinking, that's happening. It's been happening for a long time, right? When Jesus started, the the whole conversation started because Jesus told the disciples that the temple that they loved so much was going to be destroyed, right? And that did happen. That temple was demolished in AD 70. It was torn down and demolished. In fact, pretty much everything that Jesus mentioned in these signs, they're all happening during that time frame. Most scholars will tell you that the the writings of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were written about 30-some years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They had been compiling these things, wrote them down, and then they started circulating about 30-some years after. Between those three Gospels, they say they were written anywhere between A.D. 55 to A.D. 65. All right, well, here's what you, you can know about that time frame and about that period. There were threats of war that were taking place all during that time against the Jews. There were three Roman emperors during that time who were constantly making threats and bringing war to the Jews, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. You've probably learned about them in history. There were serious serious disturbances in Alexandria in 38 AD, right? Uh, the, the Jews were had, had much persecution that took place on them. There were things that took place in Seleucia where over 50,000 Jews were persecuted. There was wars and rumors of wars and threats and persecution taking place in Jamnia near Joppa during that time. But those wars and those threats and rumors of wars and persecution, that wasn't the only thing. Between the time that Jesus made this prophecy, during the time where all these letters were being circulated, until the before the temple was destroyed, earthquakes were taking place. In AD 46, AD 47, there was an earthquake that took place in Crete. There was one that took place that was a big one in Rome in AD 51. 
There was one in Ampia near Phrygia that took place in AD 60. There was one in Campania that happened in AD 63. Right? So this was taking place. There were four different famines that took place in between the time that Jesus made the statements to the time that the temple was destroyed. Just in between those times, there were four famines, one of which is talked about by Luke, who wrote the book of Acts in Acts chapter 11, verse 38. He references one of those famines. Point being is that people have been saying they are the Messiah for centuries. People have been trying to predict when Jesus is going to come back for centuries. Wars, rumors of wars, that's been happening for centuries, still happening today. Plagues, diseases, famines, those things have been happening for centuries, still happening today. I, I actually saw an article this morning. The, the, I don't know if it was the director of WHO or somebody in the WHO organization, not WHO the band, WHO, uh, they said that we need to start preparing for disease X. We don't know what disease X is. We just need to start preparing for it. Maybe that's a good thing. But plagues, diseases, famines, all these things, they've been taking place for centuries. Earthquakes have been taking place for centuries. They've been happening in Elgin now for the last year, right? They're all over. Every blood moon that comes out sparks a debate. Is this the time of Jesus' return? But Jesus himself makes it clear that these things must take place, but it is not yet the end, right? What these things do is they remind us of how fragile life is. They remind us that there is an impending judgment that comes from God. The world that we live in, it's temporary. And we see that every time these things take place. But the thing about these things that they take place is they attack the peace of our mind. They they attack the peace that's in our heart. That's why we have to keep in mind that there is no world organization anywhere that's going to bring us the peace that we desire or the peace that we need in this life. The only way that we're going to get peace is through the Prince of Peace. And the only way that we will ultimately have peace is when the Prince of Peace returns. That's it. But now here's what Jesus is encouraging us. He says, the one that endures to the end will be saved. What does he mean by that? You endure by putting your hope in him. Your hope in Christ. Your hope then is anchored to him regardless of what happens around you, regardless of what you face, regardless of what's going on in the world. Your hope is in Christ. Your hope is anchored there. And what Jesus calls these things, he gives them these things and calls them signs and he calls them birth pains. Did you catch that? Now there's a couple of things about birth pains. All right. I'm not a woman. I'm married to one. All right. And we've had children. Now, twins were our first, so we had to have a C-section. We, I say we, boy, I'll use that term loosely. All right. Um, My wife had a C-section. I was there. Moral support. Um, So I didn't get to experience the actual birthing of a child through natural birth. But I know everything I've been told, that is a very painful thing, right? It's a painful thing. Now, one thing about those pains, too, is the closer you get to childbirth for a woman, the more those pains increase in quality and quantity, right? The closer you get, the more they intensify in how often they happen and how hard they are to handle. So if we look at this imagery that Jesus has given us, when these being birth pains, a couple of things we can get. One is that these things are probably just going to multiply get more and more rapid, more and more often. 
That's encouraging, right? But even the book of Revelation talks about the intensification of that. The encouraging thing is the second aspect of birth. Any woman will tell you that goes through birth that even though it's painful, it produces one of the most joyful and beautiful occasions in their life because they bring forth new life into this world. And so we look again at this imagery that Jesus gives us. He is letting us know we look beyond the tribulation that that we might face. We look beyond God's judgment that comes to those who are outside of his covering. And we see an emergence of a fully realized kingdom of God under the reign of the glorious power of Jesus Christ. And I believe that that's what Jesus wants us to keep our attention on. That's what Jesus was keeping his disciples' attention on. See, Jesus does not specifically answer the disciples' questions. He gives them these things which we know have been happening ever since he said it. He doesn't specifically answer and give them all these different things to look at and see when he's coming. But what he does encourage is for them to not be misled. Every one of those gospels that I mentioned, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them begin with Jesus telling them, don't be misled. Don't be deceived. Because that's exactly what the enemy wants to happen to you. He wants to deceive you. He wants to cause you to be stressed about everything that's going on. And to wonder and to question and to change things. He wants to deceive you. But Jesus is encouraging his his listeners. He encourages us. Don't be deceived. Because what does he say? He's going to come and many, not a few, but many will be deceived. So basically Jesus' message to his disciples throughout this teaching was you need to watch. You need to be aware. And you need to evaluate everything you hear. He's encouraging them to, to not allow themselves to be deceived and to not allow difficulties that you face in this life to sway your faith in him. Now, Jesus did give one clear sign, okay? So I promise you, I'm about to show it to you. Keep going to Matthew. I'm about to show it. And, and if you see this, you know what's happening, okay? Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. And then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens and there'll be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with mighty blasts of trumpet and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world. So that's your clear sign, right? That's the one clear sign he gives you. When you see that, there's no question. He's coming. But I get it. There's the question. When? What, is there something that just kind of gives us a point that that's about to happen? Or, or what's going what's gonna, to... Oh, I, I realize that there's questions galore that go around this whole teaching. And when all this will happen. The only thing I can tell you is exactly what Jesus told them in this same teaching. Verse 36. No one knows the day or hour when these things, these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. That's Jesus. Only the Father knows. And, you know, I get it. I mean, there's, it's hard to understand how Jesus himself could not know when he was going to return if he was God. 
if Jesus is God, how can he not know when he's going to come back? We talked a little bit about this at the end of last year in one of our series we did. We looked at the book of Philippians. We talked about how Jesus came as a servant. And Paul talked about the fact that he, he, he let go of some of his expression as deity. And it's not that he ceased to be God. It's just that he released some of his privileges as God. The fact that he was fully God did not, uh, did not take away from him being fully man. And the fact that he was fully man did not take away from him being fully God. Because here's the thing about it. Jesus was both. As son of man, he would get hungry. He would need to eat from time to time. But as son of God, he could multiply the loaves of bread and fish to feed thousands of people. As a son of man, he would get thirsty from time to time. He would need something to drink. But as a son of God, he could turn water into wine at a wedding party. As a, as a son of man, he would grow tired and he would have to step away from everything that was happening around him. He would get weary. But as the son of God, he would raise the dead. As a son of man, his days were counted. He had birthdays probably. He was born an infant. He grew up to be a man. So people counted his years. But as the son of God, he was the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. As a son of man, he did not know when his time would be that he would come back. But as the son of God, he knew he would come back and he knew how he would come back and he knew he would come back in full glory and full power. The point that Jesus was letting his followers know and the point that he's letting us know is that we've got to live every day as if it could happen any day. And if he gives you a day, then you have a purpose in that day. That's what we have to remember. That's what we have to keep in mind. That's why you keep reading. He goes on, he tells them, it'll be like the days of Noah. What does he mean by that? When Noah gave the warning that he was going to flood the world and flood the earth, 120 days passed before the flood actually took, took place. 120. Okay, anyway, you get a point. It was a long time. I have to go back and correct myself because I'm having a brain toot right now. And I'm kidding. Okay, but anyway, it was a long time. And so what Jesus was saying is he was saying, what happened was the warning came, people forgot. And when it came, they weren't ready. Don't let that happen to you in regards to my second coming. Jesus didn't give signs so that we could chart the future and when it's going to happen. He gave us signs so that we could be prepared that it would happen. And we could preach his peace until it happens. In fact, you heard him say when he was talking to his disciples that the preaching of the gospel would continue to happen throughout the world until the end of the world. That's the goal. So I think it's valuable for us to look at what those who were with Jesus and those who were around when Jesus lived and what they gleaned from his teaching, especially about the end time. So real quick, let's do that. Let's look at Paul first. Go to 1 Thessalonians. That's where we'll go if you got your Bibles. We'll go to 1 Thessalonians. It'll be on the screen too. Chapter 5. Verse 1, he's writing to the church in Thessalonica. He says this, Now concerning how and when all this will happen, he's talking about the end of time. Concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful and everything is secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin. And there'll be no escape. But you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For you are all children of the light 
and of the day. We don't belong to darkness and night. So be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-minded. That's a pretty good, straightforward point that Paul's given us, right? We jump to verse 9. He says, For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us, so that whether we are dead or alive when he returns, we can live with him forever. So encourage each other and build each other up, just as you are already doing. All right, jump to the second letter, Second Thessalonians. See, people, Paul wrote that first letter, then other people started circulating some things, trying to confuse people. So Paul said, all right, I need to write a second letter. So he sends a second letter, Second Thessalonians. We'll jump to chapter 2, look at verse 1. Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathering to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them, even if they claim to have a spiritual vision a revelation, or a letter, supposedly from us. Don't be fooled by what they say. For that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. We'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. In John chapter 3, verse 6. So he tells them, you know, he goes into more talking about why they don't need to be concerned about things. Just again, just what I told you in the first letter, be alert, be ready. You're in him, you're in Christ. So he keeps going beyond. He keeps giving them instruction and catches instruction, right? Verse six of chapter three. And now dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all believers who are living idle lives and don't follow the tradition. Don't follow and, and don't follow the tradition uh, they received from us. Verse 10, he said, even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. All right, that sounds interesting. It's like Paul is talking about this stuff and then he jumps to this thing about working and not being idle. And you basically tell him, get a job, Right? This is Paul's instruction. This is Paul's encouragement. Paul, who would have, who, who would have heard about Jesus' teaching, he was alive in that time. He may not have followed Christ until later, but he knew these teachings. And he's telling them, all right, look, this is what we need to do. You need to be alert. You need to encourage each other. You need to anticipate it, but you need to get a job and you need to work and make a living and give God glory through your job. Why is that important? Because when people, and this has happened when people have made predictions, people think because God's coming back, I don't need to work. I don't need to pay off my debt. What's the point? It don't matter. God's coming back. That's not the call of the follower of Christ. That doesn't represent him. Well, it's it's a, an, an unwillingness to work is almost an epidemic or an, in, an epidemic in the hearts of man today. There's a staggering number that started circulating last year about men Men in their prime between the ages of 25 and 54 in the prime of their life, 7 million men are not working and not looking for work. That's not meaning people who aren't giving and working and just not accepting pay for it. That's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about people who want to work but can't work. It's talking about people who can work They're in their prime and they're choosing not to work. That is not what God has called us to. 
And the pandemic, researchers say the pandemic did to this number what it did to basically every other number. It was already happening. The pandemic just revealed it and, and, and sped it up. If you fall into that number where you can work, you're fully capable of working, and you can get a job, Paul would tell you, get a job. And until Christ comes, you work in that job and you bring him glory until he comes in glory. That's what he would tell you. You be alert. You be ready. You know he's coming. You encourage each other. But work while, until it happens. Then one more guy, Peter, real quick. Second Peter, chapter, uh, chapter 3. Start at verse 10. It's, this is going to sound very familiar to Paul's. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve, punish, or to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along, on that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in flames. John to verse 14, he says, So dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. So his encouragement is very similar to Paul's. He is saying, be alert, be ready, live your life for him to bring him glory until he comes back. Anticipate it. Look forward to it, he says. Hurry it up, he says. But live your life until it happens to bring him glory. The the early church was so excited about the coming of Christ, they had a word, a greeting that they would say to each other every time Jesus returned, or every time they would cross each other's path. Maranatha. Maranatha. It meant our Lord is coming. Our Lord will return. Maranatha. They passed by each other. Maranatha. That was a greeting of anticipation because there was a deep sense of anticipation from Christian to Christian that he is coming back. And we should have that anticipation in our life. The sad thing is, we'll talk about this more in the coming weeks. The sad thing is we don't anticipate his coming because we're so in love with the world we live in now. But the thing is, the most beautiful thing in this world does not compare to what he has for us. So what happens as we wait, as we wait on him to come back and we don't know when it is. So as we wait, we combine an anticipation of his glorious return with a passionate exclamation of his gracious gospel. We live in anticipation and we exclaim his goodness. C.S. Lewis lived during the 60s. He was an atheist. God changed his life. He wrote some prominent books you've probably heard of. It's the Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity. But he lived during the 60s. There was a lot of threat of nuclear war and a lot of threat of things that people thought the world was going to end, the world was going to be destroyed. And so they, somebody asked C.S. Lewis, how can one live at peace and live without fear knowing that this could take place? So C.S. Lewis gave this response, and I think it helps us and we wonder, okay, when is Christ comes back, coming back? Well, C.S. Lewis said, what I know is that all of us will die eventually. And for most of us, it will be sudden. And for many of us, it will be unpleasant. He says, we may not know when or how death will come, but we know it will come for all of us. And it's very likely to be unexpected and unpleasant. 
And I know that sounds a bit morbid, he says. But when you resolve yourself to that, you can start to use whatever amount of time you do have, whether it's six months or 60 years, you can use that time to embrace life and capitalize on whatever opportunities God has put in front of you. And he makes a statement. He says, our main question should not be when and how we're going to die, but how will we live while we're alive? That should be our main question. And so my, my statement from, I would tell you what C.S. Lewis says, what the gospel tells us, what Jesus told us, what his listeners told us, what his disciples told us. Our main question, yes, we anticipate the coming of Christ. We look forward to the coming of Christ. But our main question should not be when or how necessarily is this going to take place, but how are we going to live until it does? How are we going to live for him until it does? How are we going to bring him glory until it does? And even with disasters and everything happening around us, we've got to remember that on the heels of these of any disastrous event, the gospel has unprecedented opportunity speak into someone's life, to change someone's life. Our waiting for Christ's return has to be active anticipation, not passive pandering. Not just going about life, living however we want to live, doing whatever we want to do, going from this to that. But actively living and giving our life for Christ and anticipating, believing He is going to return one day. So I just ask you these questions as we close. Do you live every day as if you're prepared see him today or to see him tonight? Do you look forward to his return? Do you give glory to God in every opportunity you have in your life and in your work? Do you look to give God glory and bring glory to God until he comes to glory? Do you look to share his love with whoever you can in hopes that they're going to follow him and accept him as their Savior? That's what we're called to following Christ, if we're choosing to make Him Savior and Lord of our life, that's what He's called us to. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccamden.com, go to our contact page. You'll find the link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.